Father, we know that you are the author of our story. As we learned last week, we can't rely on ourselves. There's no such thing as the self-made man. That you've been watching us since before we were born. And as we hear stories today and Stories from our congregation, stories from your word. I pray that you would help us to reflect on our own stories. Where you have us now, where you're leading us. And what you're doing and where you're working in our lives. Open our hearts to hear that this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, Gateway. This is Evie Showers. We're at the end of a series of messages, Evie, we're calling What's Your Story? So, Evie, what's your story? Well, when you called me about this yesterday, <laughs> what did I say? <laughs> I said... You have no idea what I mean. Well, I don't have a story. <laughs> what do you mean? You absolutely do. We all have a story. Where'd you grow up, Ev, and what were significant things about growing up for Little Evie? Okay, I grew up in New Jersey, right outside of Philadelphia. My dad, who grew up in Missouri, got a job there with RCA. He designed radars for 35 years. So we lived in New Jersey, but we traveled around. And I know because I've known you for a few years, you're a twin. Yes. So what was it like growing up as a twin, Ev? Well, my twin sister and I are identical, so that was kind of fun. We'd pulled some tricks on people. We were in the middle of two boys, so I have an older brother and a younger brother, and then there's my sister and I. And it always made me feel just different and special to have a twin. And I had a built-in friend. I was painfully shy as a child, and having a built-in friend was, uh, was pretty nice. I've never asked you this before, but are both of you shy, or is Ellen less shy? Or We are both shy. Okay. All right. <laughs> so did you grow up in a religious home? Sort of. Okay. Okay. Uh, this is a complicated answer. My dad is an atheist to this day, but my mom is a Christian, and so we would go to, to and church. And was when you were younger. And was when I was younger, and we would go to church from time to time. So how did, your dad's an atheist, how did spiritual connection happen for you? Well, when I was 13, the girl down the street invited me to a Christian girls camp, and I went for one week. My sister went with me. The two of us were in the same cabin, and I had never heard the story of how Jesus came to earth to die for us and given his life for our sins. I had never heard that story, even though I had been in and out of church my whole life, and I was just blown away. It was the first time I felt loved. 
And um, I've been a Christian ever since. <laughs> so it was obviously, as you can see, because I'm choking up a little, it was a very significant experience, even though I was 13. Was it significant for you emotionally as well? Yes, that, yes. Okay. I think so. And since then, everything has been up and to the right and awesome. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I've definitely had my ups and downs. That was a significant experience, but I wouldn't say that it was perfect since then, no. <laughs> How have you nurtured that spiritual connection over the years? What's been important in nurturing that? Well, I don't want to sound like a cliche, but it's really true that community is important. When I graduated from high school, I went to college at a school in North Carolina called Wake Forest, and I looked for community, Christian community from the day that I set foot on that campus that's where I met my husband, and it, it, that was a significant place for me to figure out that what you always want to do is be in community, in Christian community, because you can't hide a lot of stuff when you're in community. Okay, so today I'm going to be talking about sharing our story. Our story is meant to be shared. Right. So how is sharing story, how does that work with you and for you? Because you are self-described shy. Mm -hmm. So sharing your story, what's I, up? I think what works for me, because so many things don't work for me when it comes to what, talking what to people. What do you mean? Okay. Yeah, I'm, I don't, I feel, often feel like it's hard to talk to people. But when I forget myself and I think about their story, then I find myself immersed in their story and able to share my own without really even thinking about it. That's interesting. So. Okay, can you end our time by reading our scripture for today? We're going to look at a, a fascinating instance of sharing. This comes from Luke chapter 5. So if you've got a Bible with you or if it's on your phone, Luke 5. We'll start with verse 27. And uh, most of you know, if you've been around church for any period of time, you know that Jesus had a group of students who followed him and were fully devoted to him, 12 to be exact. We have most of the, or many of the instances of those folks connecting to Jesus, and we're looking at one of those stories today. This is the story of Matthew, although Luke and his account and his biography of Jesus, Luke calls him Levi. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32, and let's again go old school. Let's stand out of reverence for God's word. Okay, this is Luke 5, starting with verse 27, the calling of Levi. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Father, you are holy and remarkable, as we sang this morning. You're greater than obstacles and trials and even the idiosyncrasies of our personality, Lord, that keep us locked in ourselves or prevent us from entering in and connecting to you and with others. You're greater than that. 
And Lord, I pray today that you'd be speaking. I ask that you would forgive me of my sin and that what's said today would be of you. It would be your words. Lord, I I pray that you would break open our chests and massage our hearts today awake and alive with you and with your truth. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, let me start this morning with a story that illustrates the heart of this passage. In his book, The Kingdom of God is Like a Party, Tony Campolo tells about a time when he was in Honolulu on a speaking engagement, and uh, his internal clock was out of whack, so at 3.30 in the morning, he found himself on a seedy part of town in an all-night bar looking for something to eat. He was surrounded by a group of eight or nine prostitutes who had just taken the night off. And he overheard one of the prostitutes say to her girlfriend, tomorrow is my birthday. And then Campola says this, her friend scoffed. So what do you want from me? You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday? The birthday girl protested. Why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you, that's all. Why do you have to put me down? Besides, why should you give me a birthday party now when I've never had a birthday party in my whole life? When the prostitutes left, Campolo hatched a plan. He decided to go back the next night, decorate the bar, wait for the girls to arrive, and give the birthday girl a surprise party. The bartender was willing and even agreed to bring a cake. So the next night, the stunned girl walked in and was taken completely aback when the whole bar sang happy birthday to her and she saw her cake. At one point in the evening, Campolo offered to say a prayer for the woman before the obviously stunned crowd. And after the prayer, the bartender turned to Campolo, and I'm reading again from Campolo, hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? (laughs) Campolo replied, I replied, he says, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. The bartender then sneered, no, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. That's the kind of church Jesus came to start. All right, comma. We'll get back to that in a few minutes. Let's start with the heart of the matter this morning. If you forget everything else, don't forget this. Our story is meant to be shared. In fact, as Jesus changes your story, sharing is the most natural thing for you to do. As Jesus changes our story, sharing is the most natural thing for us to do. Okay, we don't know much about Matthew's story. In this biography, Luke calls him Levi, and it's not uncommon for people in the ancient Near East to have had two names. We know just from among the disciples themselves, Thomas is also called Didymus, Peter is also called Cephas. We know that he was probably well-educated, he probably spoke Greek and Aramaic, he was probably very wealthy, and he was probably utterly reviled and hated by his neighbors and the people of his community, tax collectors usually were. In fact, Most people considered tax collectors the lowest of the low. They were the sinners that made other sinners feel good about themselves. Tax collectors collected both the annual income of about 1% for Rome and travel and trade taxes. So now the annual tax. uh, No one knows exactly how the annual tax was collected. It may have differed from province to province throughout Rome, and Rome left it up to the provinces to decide. So in some cases, it was probably house to house. In other cases, they may have set up some central location, village by village. 
The trade tax was a little different. And the trade tax is probably what Matthew was engaged in in this account. Trade tax booths would be set up near waterways, for example, the Sea of Galilee, or on heavily traveled roadways, and tax collectors were allowed, encouraged, expected to levy a tax on whatever you were catching or transporting. Certain amount of this tax went to Rome, and here's the kicker, and then the collectors would keep whatever they could extract above and beyond what Rome expected. So tax collectors were not only Roman collaborators, but they made their money by literally overcharging their neighbors. And in the case of Matthew and Galilee, his neighbors were very, very poor. We can guess that Matthew ran in a very small circle of very wealthy friends. No one else would accept him. Outside of that, they would have been reviled and ostracized, maybe even more so as a group than they were as individuals. They occasionally rubbed noses with Roman officials, and most likely they would have cavorted with other outcasts like prostitutes. That's why a couple of times in the biographies, they're mentioned together, tax collectors and prostitutes. In fact, in Mark and Matthew's account of this same incident, they describe the people at Matthew's party as tax collectors and sinners. We don't know how Matthew's family felt about him. Were they ashamed? Had they utterly rejected Matthew? Had they disowned him? Or did the collaboration begin with Matthew's father? Was this the family business? What was the whole family, really, community outsiders? Reviled, but comfortable in their lifestyle. Where did Matthew trade and get his goods? I can imagine him having difficulty finding someone to sell him food and stores, especially luxury items that his money could afford? Did he have Roman friends who would bring him things from other parts of the world? We don't know what Matthew thought of himself either, especially in light of his profession. Did he hate the rejection? Or had he grown numb to it? Was it hard for Matthew to collect taxes? And was he ruthless or was he kind? How did he feel about his Roman overlords? Tax collectors entered into the profession by literally bidding on the job. So chief tax collectors would award a certain territory or a certain booth to the highest bidder. So we don't know what kind of ambivalence Matthew might have felt, but he had to have been pretty motivated to even enter this profession. Was he driven by the money, maybe? I mean, something had to make him willing to withstand the hatred of his neighbors. But we also know that Matthew was a man secretly looking for change. We know that because of the way he responds here. He must have wondered if real change was even possible for a guy like him. Where could he go to look for change? The Pharisees wouldn't even allow him to enter Torah classes or worship services. There would be no religious friends. They would have all rejected him. Maybe he was interested in Roman religion. Did he try it for a while? Maybe the worship of the gods helped assuage his guilt somewhat. Then Jesus showed up on his road, and in front of his booth. Now, as I've said before here at Gateway, by this point in his ministry, Jesus was already a rock star in Galilee. Matthew had absolutely heard about him. Had he heard him speak before? Perhaps. Had he seen him heal before? Just before Jesus met Matthew in this incident, he had healed a paralyzed man. Without question, Matthew had heard about this. Did he see it? So... Hello, what's your name? Well, my name is Levi, sir. My 
friends call me Matthew. Don't you know there were many occasions like that in Jesus' life? I bet people ended up saying things all the time that they hadn't expected to say. Well, Matthew, I don't have anything to claim. No cargo, no cart, no fish. I'm afraid I'm of no help to you. Yes, I can see that, sir. You know who I am? Uh, I, I think so. I, I think you might be the rabbi Jesus. Well, then I'm at a decided disadvantage, Matthew. You know something about me, but I know nothing about you. What's your story? Uh, uh, I'm a tax collector, Rabbi. Well, I, I can see that, but what's your story? Do you imagine things differently? Matthew, do you want things to be different? Do you want things to change, really change? Well, I, I, I don't know what you mean, Rabbi. Oh, oh, I think you do. I think you know exactly what I mean. Matthew, why don't you become my student? Follow me. And Luke says, Levi got up, left everything, and followed Jesus. <laughs> How did these things happen around Jesus? I think it's because the appearance of Jesus makes real change possible. And when we really see him, we know it. We know it. The appearance of Jesus makes real change possible. This is the story of Jesus' entire life. Matthew, Peter, Andrew, John, several paralytics, blind people, lepers, prostitutes, and Pharisees. They change. And this is the story still. Paul, Stephen, Augustine, Martin Luther, John Newton, doctors, plumbers, carpenters, shipbuilders, politicians from every nation, and me and Evie and many of you. The appearance of Jesus makes real change possible. Real change. That's because Jesus looks at our possibilities without regard for our history. Jesus looks at our possibilities without regard for our history. He knows our story, he loves and accepts our story, and he changes our story into what it was meant to be. He changes our story into what it was meant to be. Jesus looked at Matthew the same way he looked at the brothers, John and Andrew, the same way he looked at the 5,000 people he read recorded in John 6, the same way he looked at the adulterous woman that the scribes and Pharisees wanted the crowd to stone in John chapter 8. Jesus didn't consider Matthew any differently from others who needed freedom or forgiveness or hope. Jesus didn't see Pharisees or prostitutes or despicable tax collectors. Jesus saw people with complicated stories who needed God's freedom. Jesus saw Matthew. He knew Matthew's story. He accepted Matthew. He taught Matthew. He introduced Matthew to God's presence. And Matthew changed. Now, here's the thing we want to make note of today. Once Jesus had begun to percolate in Matthew's life, once Jesus had begun to drill in, Matthew couldn't help but share what was happening. It was perfectly natural for Matthew to share his encounter with Jesus. I'm convinced it wasn't overplanned. It wasn't complicated. As Evie just said about her story, it was barely thought through. It was natural. Do you remember when you were a hero on a sports field? or you got some award, or you got a new job. For some of us who are old enough 
before cell phones and can remember getting a driver's license meant liberation. You remember when you got your driver's license? You didn't have to have someone tell you, you know, you ought to share that. You couldn't help but share it. You wanted someone to know. The change Jesus brings spills into the rest of our story quite naturally, inevitably. Our story is meant to be shared. So Matthew experiences a bolt of emotional and spiritual lightning in the form of an encounter with God squeezed into human skin. And what does he do? What does Matthew do when his world gets rocked? Matthew does what a guy like Matthew always does on special occasions. He throws a party. And then according to Luke, then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. And here is Jesus on the wrong side of town at the wrong time of night partying with the sinners. Because that's the kind of church Jesus came to start. So, what's the message for us here at Gateway this morning? Okay, well, some of us, if we put ourselves in this story, we're on the outside with the Pharisees. Some of us are on the outside looking in, being critical of Jesus and judging the whole affair. This is sometimes in spiritual circles called legalism. Why do you eat and drink with those people? This is about creating categories that somehow make us better than others in our own eyes. I'm not going to say much about legalism today. I'll give an explanation for why in a second. But I want you to know, if you want to talk about it afterwards, let me know. I was raised in legalism. Friendly legalism, but legalism nonetheless. In the circles that I grew up in, I grew up in a a Baptist church in the Bible Belt in South Carolina, in fact. And in South Carolina, there were more Baptists than there were people. And they used to tell jokes in Baptist circles that, you know, so-and-so, oh, Mr. So-and-so, he died and he went to heaven and they showed him his room and he was all delighted and all of his friends there. And then someone else died, Mr. So-and-so died and he went to heaven and, and they're walking down the hall and they pass the room and St. Peter says, shh, you better be quiet. Why is that? Well, Mr. So-and-so and his Baptist friends are in in that room and they think they're the only ones. And that joke was told in every church. It was told about Catholics. It was told about Presbyterians. It was told about Baptists because we all thought that we were the only ones. We've forgotten that we don't have all the answers. We've forgotten that our story doesn't always go up and to the right. We've forgotten that we're just people with a story like everyone else. We're just people who have seen glimpses and heard rumors of glory. And we're people who are being changed into exactly what we were designed to be because God has made a connection with us. Repeat. We're people who are being changed into exactly what we were designed to be because God has made a connection with us, and on our best days we know it. So, some of us stand on the outside looking in like Pharisees. Stop it. But gateway, for most of us, that's not where we are. I think those of us who are baby boomers, and that's those of you who are 107 to 149 today, I think those of us who are baby boomers did a fairly good job of deciding denomination means nothing. 
So we graduated from college and we went off exploring and then we had children we thought, oops, I better get back to church and it just didn't matter to us what the denomination was of the church that we went to. And we were a little tired of rules and regulations and we knew that it was really about relationship. And so I think that among the many terrible things that we've done, I think one of the things that baby boomer spirituality did is it reintroduced the importance, the significance, the centrality of relationship and of community. I think it dramatically diminished the the effect of legalism in, in American Christianity and the American church. Oh, we still have it. You know, we still like to judge other people's sins more harshly than our own, especially sexual sins. But Mostly, you don't have the kind of legalism in the church today that you had in the church that I grew up with. Those of you who are baby busters or those of you who are the children of baby boomers, Jordan and all the rest of you, you're welcome. I think that's one of the things that we've done. I don't think most of us at a church like Gateway, most of us, there are a few of you who are exceptions and you know who you are, but I don't think that most of us are standing on the outside of the party saying, why are you eating with those people? No, I think for most of us, we wouldn't be on the outside. We'd be in the party. We just forget to ask Jesus to come. I said at the beginning today, as Jesus changes our story, sharing it is completely natural. You know what else is natural? Fearing what people think of you. Or becoming so busy, you lose touch with what's real. And what's happened to you? I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of throwing a Matthew party, but a couple of things come to my mind that I hope is going to give us food for thought. Now, this is not profoundly practical, but I really do want us to chew on the next few minutes this morning. A couple of things for us to think about because I'm going to issue an assignment at the end of today. So first of all, first thing to think about, I I think there are ways of relating that have to be identified and unlearned in order for the completely natural tendency to share our story come through. Let me say that again. I think there are ways of relating that have to be identified and unlearned in order for us to allow the completely natural tendency to share our story to come through. For instance, maybe you're driven deep down inside by the desire to be impressive or to be respected. And there are ways of relating that you've developed over a lifetime that aren't helping you. And they may have to be unlearned if you're going to do the completely natural work of sharing your story. Because sometimes you're at Matthew's party and you're extremely interested in finding out who else is there and knowing that they know you're there and knowing that they're impressed with you. You're so interested in that. You forget Jesus is at the party and you forget to introduce him. Or maybe you're driven by the need to be liked or the fear of making a mistake or the fear of being taken advantage of or the fear of looking foolish. And you've developed ways of relating over a lifetime that aren't helping you, ways of protecting yourself, ways of guarding yourself that inhibit the completely natural tendency to share your story. These ways of relating sometimes block the natural flow of God connecting and changing you, and then you sharing that change. I was percolating on this Friday, and Diane got an email from a friend of ours, and and it was a link to a, I don't know if any any of you have seen this, but a TED Talk, How to Tie Your Shoes. Go look it up if you haven't seen it. It's like three minutes. 
And this guy's a really, he's funny, it's very captivating. And he does a talk on how all of us have tied our shoes wrong our whole lives. You know, Diane told me about this, and I looked it up, and I thought, well, that's an interesting illustration. No, he's literally talking about tying your shoes. And he says that he always had trouble with these kind of laces, you know, the, the, the round kind. They would always come apart, and mine always do. So he shows you an alternate way of tying, trust me, an alternate way of tying your shoes. I've been doing it now for two days. It works. It's better. However, every time I go to tie my shoes, you know, you, start, you learn how to tie your shoes. I don't remember how old I was. Little. You learn to tie your shoes a certain way. We all learned. I know you're tying them the wrong way. We all learned the same way. And every time I've tied my shoes over the last couple of days, I have to stop. Nope. I have to stop and think. But it creates a stronger knot. There are ways of relating that you and I have to identify and unlearn in order to allow for the completely natural tendency to share our story. So let's unlearn some old ways of relating so that what happens can flow through us as it's naturally designed to do instead of being blocked by our fear, our busyness, our fill-in-the-blank. Second thing I want us to think about this week. Secondly, look, If you've dialed out, dial back in for just a sec. A fresh encounter with Jesus always pours out of us quite naturally. A fresh encounter with Jesus always spills out of us quite naturally. It overcomes our other competing tendencies. Matthew meets Jesus, and the first thing he wants to do is to invite his friends to meet Jesus as well. If we have a sharing problem, don't miss this. If we have a sharing problem, it may be that we have a connection problem. If we have a sharing problem, in all likelihood, our connection to God has grown stale and we have nothing life-giving to share. So we need to take the time to encounter Jesus. We need to take the time to encounter Jesus. I got three emails yesterday from different ones of you about, well, we won't call them Uber encounters, but let's call them casual, everyday, gentle reminder encounters with Jesus. For each of you felt the need to, the desire, not the need, the desire to share it with someone. When you have a fresh encounter with Jesus, the first thing you want to do is tell someone. Because our story is meant to be shared. Okay, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and uh, wrap us up this morning. As they come, I want to give you an assignment. I want you to, this week, two things. This week, think about those couple of things, if you would. What in you needs to be identified and unlearned in order for you to let the natural tendency to share our story come through? And then secondly, when and how can you create the space? And it's about creating space. Let's not kid ourselves. When and how can you create the space this week for a fresh encounter? Just create the space and ask and see what he does. Okay, but the the real assignment for all of us, Gateway, you're really not bad at this. For supposedly, some people on the outside would think of us this way, for supposedly stuffy religious people, you're actually pretty fine. So I want you to put your party hats on. I want all of you between now and Christmas to plan a Matthew party. Grab your small group, 
or grab the two or three people in the church that you're closest to and invite some of your friends who are far from a connection with God and invite Jesus. You can also invite me if you want to. I'd love it. But invite your small group, your friends, and then invite people who are far from God and throw a Matthew party. We're not looking for any outcome. That's in God's hands. But throw a Matthew party sometime between now and Christmas. All right, I'm sorry. Let's all stand together. All right, raise your right hand. Repeat after me. Right hand, repeat after me. I, fill in your name. That was obnoxious. Don't repeat that. I like to party. So sometime between now and Christmas, that is the most unenergetic party people I've ever heard. So sometime between now and Christmas, I'm going to throw a Matthew party. And I'm going to remember to invite Jesus. Okay, now, you can put your hands down. Let's all get comfortable with one another. I want you to turn to a couple of people around you, and I want you to say, that was really awesome. I feel incredibly convicted. You're not invited to my Matthew party. So go ahead. Turn, tell somebody they're not invited. Okay, that's enough partying. So remember, we've got some things to unlearn. And we're looking for space this week for a fresh encounter with Jesus. We've got some things to unlearn, and we're looking for some space this week for a fresh encounter with Jesus. Because Jesus is mine. And when Jesus is mine, there's a, oh, it's awesome. There's an assurance. When Jesus is mine, there are glimpses of glory and rumors, and we get hints, and They're visions of rapture. And once in a while, once in a while we create the space where we can be perfectly at rest. Let's sing, choir. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior. Blessed assurance. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory.
This is my story This is my song Raising my Let's pray for me. Father, thank you for being with us today. We thank you that you've reached down and included us in your story. And we are reminded that this is all your story. Guide us as we live out the stories that you've given each of us. And be with us this week as we go out, part of your larger community. And we ask, Lord, that you would accept the gifts that we're about to give and continuing in our worship and praising you and ask you to just use us and use our gifts for you in this kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.